Hello and welcome, my faithful and loyal <coughs> readers and listeners. Welcome to our daily devotional for June the 17th. So if you will recall, our daily devotional segments are divided, our daily devotionals are divided into two distinct segments. We have our verse of the day segment, and we have our through the Bible in one year segment. <coughs> so our verse of the day for June the 17th is Isaiah chapter 12 verse 2, which says, Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself, is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. So in order to gain a better understanding of what the prophet Isaiah is saying here, we've got to back up and we're going to look at this entire 12th chapter of Isaiah, which only contains six verses. So we're going to start with verse 1, which says, I will praise you, Lord, although you were angry with me. Your anger has turned away, and you have comforted me. So that's verse 1, verse 2 we've already read. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord himself is my strength and my defense. Uh, and he has become my salvation. So with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day you will say, Give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. And proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion. For great is the Holy One of Israel among you. So what we should see out of this short little chapter in the book of Isaiah is that just as Israel's exodus out of Egypt and through the Red Sea, which you see detailed in the book of Exodus, chapters 12 through 14, led to a song of praise, that would be the very next chapter in Exodus, Exodus 15. So the future and climactic Exodus of God's people put into a song of praise. So this future and climactic Exodus of God's people is what we see. Very in the very last verse of Isaiah, of Isaiah chapter 11, which is verse 16, which says there will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria, as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the people of Israel will sing of God's turned away anger 
which will be replaced by comfort. So their hearts will see God as trustworthy and worthy of worship. So they will see God as their salvation, which is what verses 2 and 3 tell us, which says, Surely God is my salvation. They will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So the people of Israel will be so moved and humbled by God's grand work that they will announce it with global praise. See, his name, God's name, will be exalted among the nations for the glorious things he has done, which is what we see in the last three verses of this short chapter in the book of Isaiah, which says, starting in verse 4, In that day you will say, Give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. Great is the Holy One of Israel among you. So the inauguration of the new creation in Christ Jesus is the basis for our prostrate praise now. So it's the basis of the posture, the position, how we praise right in this new age. How those of us who are children of God, just as the people of Israel were God's children, God's chosen people. So those of us who are followers of Christ have been grafted in to this olive wall, into this tree, into this family, into God's family tree. And so the new creation that we have been made in Christ Jesus is the basis for how we praise God now, even though God has not finished, not yet finished, applying the victory that Christ achieved on the cross, and he will not finish applying that victory until Christ returns to establish his earthly kingdom. So what we see, what we should take out of this, is that the jubilant tone that we see here in Isaiah 12, because this is a song of praise, it has a jubilant, a happy, and excited, a festive, a praising tone, will ultimately be realized in the forever fellowship of God and His people in the glorified cosmos that will happen when 
Jesus returns to establish his earthly kingdom. So the Bible readings you should have done for June the 17th are 1 Kings chapter 18, Acts chapter 11, Psalm 135, 1 through 21, and Proverbs 17. Excuse me. Proverbs 17, 12 through 13. So that concludes our verse of the day segment for June the 17th. So now we're going to move into our Through the Bible in One Year segment for June the 17th. And so, we have been going through the book of John, and so we are on to day 166. So if you have missed any of our Through the Bible in One Year segments, or any other segments, so such as our verse of the day, or if you just want to see what else is out there, visit UpstateChristian.com. Come. So our focus passage for June the 17th is John 16, 16 through 33. So what we reach here on June the 16th is the end of the teaching portion of Jesus' great discourse he gave to his disciples in his last hours that he was with them. And so in this last teaching portion of Jesus' great discourse, and the last really teaching portion to his all of his disciples of his earthly ministry, because this is essentially the end of Jesus' earthly ministry here in chapter 16. Right. He finally tells his disciples in plain words what he has been hinting at over the last two chapters and throughout his entire earthly ministry, which spanned about three years. And that is, he came from the Father, and that he is going back to the Father, but those who have placed their faith and trust in him have nothing to worry about because just as Jesus overcame the world, he too can overcome the world through faith in him. So now let's pick up in John chapter 16, verse 16, and we're going to go through verse 24. So, here is what it says. It says, Jesus went on to say, In a little while you will see me no more. Then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying in a little while you will see me no more? And then after a little while you will see me. And because uh, I am going to the Father, they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. 
Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. The woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. That day you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. So Jesus began this final section of his discourse, this great discourse that occurred in the upper room on his last physical day with his disciples by explaining that his separation from his disciples would only be temporary. So again we see that the disciples were completely perplexed as to what Jesus meant by this, which again is evidenced by their repeating of his words. In other words, they ask himself, what does he mean when he says this? And he says this, and he says this, and he says this, because they don't understand. They're completely baffled. They're completely bamboozled. They have no idea what he is saying. So, Jesus knew that his disciples found his words confusing as he spoke to them concerning his death. Concerning his death, resurrection, and his return to the Father. So Jesus went on to explain that the world would rejoice at his death and the disciples would grieve, but their sorrow would soon turn into joy. He went on to compare what they were experiencing to a mother in childbirth. Because you see, a mother experiences great sorrow and pain while in labor, but great joy accompanies the birth of her child. So what he's essentially saying is that oftentimes our greatest moments of joy are preceded by great moments of pain and anguish. So, the, well, so, so what I'm saying there is that the very thing that would cause the disciples sorrow, which was Jesus' death, would be the thing that would bring them joy. And you see, that is Jesus' resurrection and his forgiveness of sin, because without Jesus' death, there could be no resurrection and there could be no forgiveness of sin. 
though sometimes we have to go through these painful periods <coughs> in order to come out on the other side with much greater joy. So the disciples' sorrow would be momentary, but their joy would never be taken away from them. And so in verse 23, we see this phrase, In that day. So that phrase likely refers to the day of Jesus' resurrection. Because after his resurrection, the disciples would not have to ask Jesus the kinds of questions they had been asking. Because you see, the dawning of the new age would bring a new intimacy in prayer with God the Father. Because previously, the disciples had not prayed to God the Father in Jesus' name. But that would change. As you see, answered prayer would and will result in tremendous joy. So let's pick up from there. So we're going to pick up in verse 25. And we're going to go through verse 28. Which says, Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language. I will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself rules. Excuse me, no, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. Back to the Father. So you see, Jesus prior to to this had been speaking enigmatically. He hadn't been plain. He hadn't been clear about what he was trying to say. But you see, a time was soon coming and was pretty close to being upon them when Jesus would speak a whole lot more plainly. See, his teaching at that time would continue to focus on revealing the Father, God the Father, to Jesus' disciples, which was Jesus' whole point in coming to earth to reveal the Father to people. And also, also, so that was one aspect, but the more important aspect was, outside of revealing the Father to people, was to take away the punishment for of sin and death for those who choose to place their faith and trust in him, who choose to accept his perfect sacrifice on their behalf. So it was seen that following the resurrection, the disciples would pray to God the Father, in Jesus' name, because they would have a more personal relationship with God the Father. 
and you see God the Father love them because of their love and belief in Jesus, who is God the Son. So we see now, now Jesus will be returning to the Father since the completion of his mission was drawing near, drawing near. So now let's pick up in verse 29 and take it to the end of chapter 16, which would take us to verse 33, which says, Then Jesus, then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things, and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you believe now? Jesus replied. A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, and I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have not told you these things so that you may have I have told you these things so that you may have peace in this, so, so that in me you may have peace, excuse me, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So in contrast to this last section, John chapter 16, in contrast to the questions that Jesus' disciples had that had previously characterized Jesus' disciples' contributions to this discussion, they responded with boldness and confidence. In verses 29 through 30, which is the part that says, Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things, and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. That you came from God. So you see, the disciples rejoiced that Jesus was finally, finally, after all this time, speaking politely and speaking clearly. To them. He wasn't speaking in figures of speech. He wasn't speaking enigmatically and mysteriously with all of these weird sayings and these weird analogies and all of this other ways that he had taught them that we see in the other gospels with parables and all of these other things that, that if you pay real close attention as you read them, you see, the disciples didn't understand it either. They had to have Jesus explain it to them after he had already taught the crowd about it. And they were dumb. They just didn't get it. So we see that the disciples rejoiced that Jesus was finally speaking clearly to them, and they were confident they now comprehended Jesus' teachings. So while the disciples would soon abandon Jesus, you see that Jesus said the Father would not abandon him. Right? That's where we get in verse 31 and 32, which says, Do you now believe? Jesus replied, A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, 
Each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone. For my father is with me. So you see, while the disciples are, so Jesus told them all of this so that they would have peace. Which is the way this chapter 16 ends. Which says, I have told you these things so that in, you, in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So you see, Jesus told them all this, they could have peace. In what we also see is the world would do its worst to Jesus. But he would be victorious over it. So you see, now let's ask that burning question. That I'm sure you'll probably have after having read that last verse that says, "What does it say again?" I have, I have told you these things so that you may have peace in this world. Excuse me, that you may have peace in this world. You will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So let's answer the burning question that verse should give you and that you should probably have by now been asking among yourselves if you have any kind of if you have been listening and paying attention you should be asking yourself this question which is how can you have peace or how can we have peace while we are facing troubles how can we have this that Jesus says he has come to give us. And the answer is very simply this. It may seem that the more trials we face, the more chaotic, that the more chaotic and the more confused our lives will be. But you see, Jesus offers a gift of peace that comes only through faith in him. That's how we get the peace that Jesus is offering us is by placing our faith and trust in Him. Because you see, Jesus' peace is greater than the temporary problems and turmoil that we experience in this world. Because what we must ultimately remember is this. Is this. The very words that Jesus spoke to his disciples at the end of this chapter, where he says, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You see, when we put our faith and trust in the one who has overcome the world, the one who has overcome every obstacle the world could ever put in our way, and then we will truly have peace, because we know that nothing the world will ever throw at us can defeat us. And so we will pick up from here tomorrow, which will be June the 18th, as we move into Jesus' great prayer that he prayed over his disciples and then over every person who will ever be a follower of him. And in order for you to be prepared to do that, here's what you need to read. 
You need to read First Kings 19. You need to read Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 23. Psalm 136, verses 1 through 26. And Proverbs 17, verses 14 and 15. Hello and welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. Welcome to another seg- welcome to our daily devotional, excuse me, for June the 18th. So if you will recall, our daily devotionals are divided into two distinct segments. We have our Through the Bible in One Year segment, and we have our Verse of the Day segment. So, our verse of the day for June the 18th comes from Psalm 103, verse 2, which says, Praise the Lord my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So, in order to understand what is really being said, here, right, we're going to have to look at this entire psalm, which is 22 verses long. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to read through it, then we're going to discuss what we read. So we're going to pick up in verse 1, so we're going to go back to verse 1 and read through these 22 verses, then we're going to discuss them. You ready? Let's go. So here's what it says. Praise the Lord my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Who satisfies your desires with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse Will he harbor his anger forever? He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love those who fear Him, and His righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep His covenant and remember to 
established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones, who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly host. You his servants who do his will, praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. So now that we have read it, let's discuss it. So this psalm that we just read expresses thanksgiving and praise to the Lord for the benefits and blessings that he gives to those of us who accept his commands and promises and who maintain a faithful relationship with him. What we must never ever forget is God's forgiveness to us or what we must never forget to do is to thank him for his blessings that he generously gives us through the Holy Spirit. So what else do we see here, right? We see that since the first humans rebelled against God's instructions, the curse of sin, sickness, and of death has been upon the entire human race. That would be every man, woman, and child fall under the curse of sin, the curse of sickness, and the curse of death. Why? Because we are descendants, right? We live in a fallen world, in a fallen condition, and the result of living in the fallen condition is that we live under the curse of sin, sickness, and death. But, but, God has provided the means for victory over the consequences of this curse. So, God has provided the means of victory over sin. How did we provide the means of victory over sin? sent his son to die in our place, to die as a, to die a substitutionary death for us, to pay the penalty that we could never pay, so that we no longer have to make imperfect animal sacrifices every year or every time we sin. Every time we transgress God's perfect law, because God has provided us the perfect means of victory over sin, He has provided us also the means for victory over sickness, which is to place our faith and trust in Him, to go to Him when we can't find the answers to our sicknesses ourselves, to go to Him for our healing. It doesn't mean 
you should avoid the doctors. And it's like, oh, well, that means we can't take one. God provided the doctors, right, with a brain that they could think and develop a means to give you a victory over your sickness. It does not go against God's will. You are not saying that, well, God's not able to provide the victory over that, so I'm going to go to somebody else. No, you're saying, what we're saying when we go to the doctor is that God has given that doctor gifts that he not given anybody else to provide me with the victory that I need over that sickness, not through his power, but through God's power. And he has been, we have been given the victory over death. Hell, we've been given the victory over death because you see, when we place our faith and trust in God, right? Listen to this. This is the key part. This is the key. You gotta get this. You gotta understand this. When we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and we accept His substitutionary atonement for our sins, then death has no hold on us. When we die, we go to live with God forever. We don't live apart from God forever. That's why the consequences of sin have been that's why God has given us the victory over death. So what we see here is that this psalm lists God's benefits for his people. Benefits such as forgiveness of sin, healing for diseases, or healing from diseases, and the gifts of spiritual freedom and eternal life. So we should understand that forgiveness is the first and most important gift can receive from God because it restores our relationship with Him and rescues us from spiritual destruction. So we also need to see that physical healing is also a part of God's complete salvation, which is a benefit available to those who have received forgiveness in a personal relationship with God that God only physically heals those who have a personal relationship with Him. What it's saying is that it comes part and parcel with God's complete salvation, right? So God wants to lift the curse of sin from you. God wants to lift the curse of sickness from you. God wants to lift the curse of death from you. But he's not going to force you to do something you don't want to do. If you want to live a life apart from him, then you're going to live a life under the curse of sin, under the curse of sickness, and under the curse of death. That is what we're talking about there. And so finally, God shows mercy to those who truly honor and respect Him for His power, for His judgment, and for His intolerance of evil. For you see, the fear of God is a liberating fear that motivates us to avoid evil, to obey God's word, and to live with a constant 
nearness of God's mercy and nearness. And so according to this passage of scripture, the blessings of God, the blessings, excuse me, the blessings God gives to those who fear Him are three things, right? So he, these are the blessings that God gives to those who fear Him. He gives His mercy, love, and forgiveness. Which is what we see in verses 11 and 12, where it says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. You also see it in verse 17, which says, But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear Him, and His righteousness with their children's children. And that's the first blessing that God gives to those who fear Him. The second blessing He gives is His fatherly compassion, which we see in verses 13 and 14, which says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion passion on those who fear him for he knows how we are formed he remembers that we are dust and the third and final blessing he gives is that he gives his faiths and goodness to the families and the descendants of those See that in verse 17, he says, But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children. So the Bible readings that you need to do for June the 18th are 1 Kings chapter 19, Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 23. Psalm 136, 1-26, and Proverbs 17, verses 14 and 15. So that concludes our verse of the day segment for June the 18th. It is now time to move into our Through the Bible in One Year segment for June the 18th. So if you recall, we finished John chapter 16 on the 17th. So on the 18th, we're going to move into John chapter 17. So by the way, this is day 167 of our Through the Bible in One Year segment. If you have missed any of these segments, or if you would like to get caught up with anything else that you think might interest you, you may visit upstatechristian.com. So our focus for today, like I said, is going to be in John chapter 17. So it's going to be verses through 12 because you see we have now ended Jesus's period of teaching and what we now see in John chapter 17 is Jesus prayer for all of his disciples 
that would be his disciples in the past, which would be those that were his disciples while he was walking the earth. Those who are his disciples now, that would be those of us that are walking the earth now who are Jesus' disciples. And when we say past, we also mean those that have come before us that are in the present and all those in the future. There is all those who would one day follow Jesus. So we see that Jesus prayed to the Father immediately after telling his disciples that in this world they would have trouble. So Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And then Jesus began this prayer, this almost high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed over his disciples then. And that he prayed over his, over his disciples that would come. So this chapter, chapter 17, is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. And it can be divided into three sections. So Jesus' prayer for himself. Jesus' prayer for his disciples. And his prayer for future believers. So what this final prayer for his disciples shows is his deepest desire for his followers both then and now. It is also a spirit-inspired example of how anyone who is in any position of authority or leadership, not just those who are in religious positions of authority or leadership should pray for those who come under their authority. So in praying for those under our care, our greatest concerns should be the fo- these following eight things. So I'm going to give you verse references that hopefully you will go back and look at once we, as we go through this chapter, section by section, and verse by verse. So the first thing that should be our greatest concern is that they know Jesus Christ and his word intimately. So you find that in verses 2 through 3. The second concern that we should have is that God may protect them from the evil influences of the world, keeping them from turning, keep, keep, uh, and he may keep them from turning away from him and give them discernment to recognize and reject ungodly beliefs and false spiritual teachings. So we see that in verses 6, 11, and 14 through 17. So that's the second thing we should be concerned about. That's the second greatest concern we should have. The third greatest concern is that they may constantly possess the full joy of serving Christ. So we see that in verse 13. The fourth great, our fourth greatest concern should be that they may live by God's standards of purity and truth in thoughts, actions, and character. And we 
me see that in verse 17, the fifth, our fifth greatest concern should be that they may be unified in love and purpose, just as Jesus and the Father are. So we see that in verses 11, and then 21 through 22. So that's the fifth greatest concern which we have. The sixth greatest concern that we have is that they may lead others to Christ. So we see that in verses 21 and 23. The seventh greatest concern that we should have is that their faith will endure. So they will one day be with Christ in heaven. Verse 24. So the eighth and final greatest concern that we should have is that they may constantly experience God's love and His presence. So we see that in verse 26. So now that we have kind of, sort of, have a general idea about what we're going to be talking about as we walk through this 17th chapter of John's Gospel, now let's actually turn to what things this this passage actually says. So the first section we're going to look at is verses 1 through 5, which say this. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Before the world began. So what we should see here is that three thoughts stand out in these opening verses, right? We should see that Jesus Jesus had confidence in the Father's plan. We see that Jesus had passion for the Father's glory. And we see that Jesus' gift of eternal life to those when we see that Jesus offers the gift of eternal life to those who are given to him by the Father. So what we see here is that Jesus addressed God as Father. He didn't address him as Yahweh. He didn't address him as Lord, as Master, any of the other terms that you might see on occasion being used to undress God. Rather, he undressed him as Father, which is a really, really, really informal way of addressing God. So instead, what we also see that instead of praying for rescue from this hour, Jesus prayed that God would 
glorify him so that he in turn might glorify the Father. You see, Jesus prayed, glorify your Son. And he concluded the opening section that we just read by asking his Father to glorify him with his pre-incarnate glory. So that word pre-incarnate means what he was before he came and took on the likeness of being a man, before he became God incarnate, which literally means God in the flesh. So the Father gave Jesus the authority to give eternal life. We see that those of us who are believers are God's gift to His Son. So let's define eternal life for just a minute. So the eternal life is defined relationally as knowing God and Jesus Christ. So when we talk about knowing, it means more than just intellectual apprehension or merely knowing about God in Jesus. What it does mean is it means knowing God in Jesus in a personal way through faith. In other words, it ain't head knowledge, it's heart knowledge. What you know in your head has got to seep down into your heart. Because if it don't ever leave your head and get down into your heart, then it ain't never going to change your life. So we see that Jesus glorified the Father by completing the work the Father gave him, especially his death on the cross. You see, Jesus spoke. He spoke as if the work were already accomplished because there was no doubt in his mind. He knew what the Father's plan was. He knew that nothing was going to stop the Father's plan from happening. And so that's why he was able to speak as if this work were already accomplished because there was absolutely no doubt in his mind. He knew it was going to be accomplished, so he spoke about it as if it had already been accomplished. So now let's look in greater detail at this concept of eternal life. Why are we going to spend this time looking at this concept of eternal life? Because we got to understand what eternal life is before we can move on. So what we need to understand is that eternal life is more than an endless, endless existence. It's more than just living forever and ever and ever. Amen. It is to know God, which is ultimately made possible through His Son, Jesus Christ. So what we see, what we should understand, is that God is not looking to spend eternity with a bunch of people who have not taken time to get to know Him in this life. In other words, if you've spent your life up, Apart from God, you're going to spend eternity apart from God. If you spend your entire life running after and seeking God to the point that you have accepted 
Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then you will spend eternity with God. So it is through faith and devotion to Christ that we can experience the highest fulfillment in life and accomplish the purpose that God wants for us. So now let's consider how the New Testament describes eternal life. So the New Testament describes eternal eternal life in two ways. The first way is it describes it as a present reality. So we saw that in John chapter 5 verse 24 and in chapter 10 verses 27 through 28. So what we should understand about this is that eternal life is something Christ followers receive as a gift. So we see that in Romans 6, 23, which says the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ and Jesus our Lord. So what we need to understand about that is that those who are followers of Christ experience it in part from the moment they accept the forgiveness of sin and yield their lives to him. So let's break that down a little bit. So we're talking about eternal life here, right? So when we say that, is that we get a glimpse of that eternal life when we become part of God's family when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Right, but what we really need to understand about this is that we do not maintain eternal life as a present reality. Right? As a present reality. We're not talking about the future hope. We can never lose the future hope. I'm going to talk about that in just a little bit. Right? So we do not maintain this eternal life that we're talking about here, right? We do not maintain eternal life based merely on a past decision to accept Christ. So what are we talking about here, right? We're talking about the fact that that decision allows us to begin experiencing the benefits of this new life as we continue to grow in a relationship with Jesus. And so in other words, what I'm saying here is that the decision that we made in the past to choose to follow Jesus, to choose to accept Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior, allows us as followers of Christ to begin to experience the benefits of the new life that we receive, which is eternal life. So what we really need to understand about eternal life as a present reality is that experiencing eternal life right now requires an active on requires an active ongoing faith in a deepening relationship with Christ because there is no eternal life apart from a relationship with Him.
And it's the first way that the New Testament describes eternal life. So the second way the New Testament describes eternal life is that it describes it as a future hope. So what we need to understand about that is that eternal life is the glorious opportunity to live with God forever. So, we, so what we really got to understand is that to enter into this aspect of eternal life is associated either with passing away from passing from this life through physical death or going with Christ when he returns or going with Christ when he returns for his faithful followers. But, 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 what we really, really must understand is that experiencing eternal life is dependent on living by the power and the direction of the Holy Spirit. So now let's finish this section by picking up in verse 6 and going through verse 12, which says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the word you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was watching with them, I protected them and kept them safe by what, by, by that name you gave me. No one has been lost, except the one doomed to, destru- to destruction. Excuse me, as that so that scripture would be fulfilled. So the central portion of Jesus' prayer focuses on his intercession for his disciples. So again, this section divides into three thoughts. We see Jesus' Jesus profess Hold on. A typo in my notes. We see uh, we see Jesus profess Oh, oh excuse me, we see Jesus' progress a report. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. 
autocorrect change progress into profess. So we see his progress report on his disciples. We see his prayer for his disciples. We see his prayer for their spiritual protection and his prayer that they would be set apart to proclaim the gospel in the world. So again, Jesus revealed God's nature to his disciples. And so now that his disciples knew what God is really like, they were able to understand that God is the source of everything that has been given to the Son. So Jesus' teaching here was an example of this. And as a result, the disciples believed that Jesus came from God. So we see that next Jesus prayed for the spiritual protection from Satan and from the world. He prayed not for the world, but for those God gave him. You gotta understand that Jesus didn't pray for those that God did not give to him. Those that were not followers of him. He prayed for his followers. He prayed for those that came under his authority. Jesus' followers were. We should see here that Jesus' followers were no longer part of the world. And, the, and Jesus used this term world here to refer to human opposition to God. And so we see that Jesus' departure was near, and he was concerned about his disciples who would remain behind. And Jesus desired that his, that his followers be protected spiritually and they would remain united once he was gone. Right? Understand that. So we need to understand that evil powers are going to attempt to destroy our unity. And that only God's presence and God's power can possibly ever preserve our unity. So the thought of unity is again, is repeated when we get over into verses 21 through 23. Why? Because that's when Jesus prays for all of his future disciples. Jesus prays the exact same thing for those of us that are alive today, that he prayed for his disciples. But he didn't just leave it as a generic prayer for all of his for his disciples in general. No, he prayed for his disciples that he had walked the earth with. And then he prayed for everybody that would come after them, that would believe all the things they believed because they saw him do it. But he prayed for those that would believe all these things based upon the faith that they had in him. So we see that Jesus protected his disciples while he was present with them. But he did not lose a single one the Father gave to him. 
with the one exception being Judas. And what we see there is that this is that that was according to scriptures that Jesus would only lose one of his chosen <coughs> followers, and that would be the one who would betray him. So what we must take out of this prayer is simply this. Christ's prayer for protection, joy, love, unity, and sanctification applies only to those who belong to God because of their faith in Christ. For you see, those who genuinely belong, genuinely belong to God will continually resist ungodly influences and beliefs as they remain separate from the behaviors and lifestyles <coughs> that are common throughout this fallen world that we live in. They will be they are able to do this because they accept and obey the commands, standards and teachings of Christ as revealed in his word. And we will pick up from here tomorrow as we can come to the conclusion of Jesus' prayer for his disciples. And then the day after that, we will move into Jesus' prayer for all his future disciples. And I know that if you read this prior to June the 19th, it would have said that we're going to conclude John chapter 17 on the 19th, but we're not going to do that. We're going to split that conclusion up into two distinct sections because we need to finish up Jesus' prayer for his current for his disciples that he walked the earth with and then and then on the twentieth we're gonna t- finish up John chapter seventeen with Jesus' prayer for his future disciples and what you need to read to be prepared for June the nineteenth discussion which should be on Jesus can at the conclusion of Jesus' prayer for his disciples. Then you need to read First Kings chapters twenty and twenty-one, Acts twelve, verse twenty-four through chapter thirteen, verse fifteen, Psalm one thirty-seven or one through nine, and Proverbs seventeen sixteen. <coughs>